What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. I was probably seven years old and my mother was drunk and she looked at me and she said, Go get me another bear, you little bastard. And if you shake this one, I'll break every goddamn finger you have. And on my way into the living room, I stood in the doorway and I shook it three times and then I threw it into the living room and ran out the back door. Welcome to Stand Up, Speak Up, a Canadian-made podcast highlighting important social issues and giving a voice to remarkable people. Howard Heathcote grew up in a house of addicts. Out of two parents and nine children, only one, an older sister of Howard's, miraculously avoided drugs and alcohol completely. Aside from that one exception, fate was all but sealed for the rest of the family. And that included Howard. As of today, there's been over 50 of my cousins, nephews, nieces, whatever, taken out of the homes, put in state custody. He grew up in the early 70s as the youngest of all nine children. And the way Howard tells the story is that he became addicted at the kitchen table with his parents before his mom passed away when he was only 10 years old. There was never a shortage of alcohol, pills, and cocaine. As Howard shares his life during this two-part series, you'll hear of one shockingly unfortunate occurrence after another. I remember eating out of a dumpster because there was nothing at my house. By just 13 years old, Howard was a full-blown alcoholic he remained that way until seven years later when he was no longer an alcohol addict, but a heroin addict. His lifestyle inevitably led him to crime. I have a shotgun. We don't need money anymore. That was my philosophy. I wound up trying to rob a guy for a couple of keys of coke one night and uh, didn't go right. It didn't go right and got caught. And that led to spending nearly a decade in prison beginning in 1997. Howard is 53 now, and while life isn't without challenges, he is clean and doing well. He runs a website and Facebook page with over 6,000 likes called The Opiate Report, which is used to explain opiates in detail, their history, facts about detox, triggers, and more, attempting to be a light at the end of the tunnel for this epidemic. Here's your host, Carla Stevens-Tolstoy. From your parents, what was their upbringing like for them to have also suffered addiction? Well, I know my mother, my mother was in and out of a psychological hospital. She had very violent tendencies um, as a young woman. When we were kids, before I was even born, you know, the state had come and taken her and put her in a home and took us and, well, not us, but my older siblings and in foster care. My father was an only child, but he was adopted by parents who had 13 other kids or something. I'm not really sure. I don't know a lot of my family's history. When they were young, it's my, I know my father was given his birthday, birthday by the army. He didn't even know, you know, really what day he was born. So there was a lot of, um, there was a lot of dysfunction. I know on my mother's side, my, my grandmother, um, had had children at a very young age, 14, 15 years old. My mother had children, 14, 15. With me, I, 
my mother became very violent towards me because um, she was older. I was the baby, and it was just a. It was it was my house was very violent, and you know, at times between my brothers and sister, myself and my my mother and father. What had led them to use I I don't know. They were always drinkers as far back as you know, pictures. I could even look back in pictures from way before I was born. There was always, you know, something, you know, drinks in hand, you know. And did like when you were in school, did they ever call in child care authorities or were you any of you ever taken from the home? I was never taken out of the home by the state. DCF was always at my house, always. Well, back then it was DCYS, you're talking the 70s, you know, and I'm the youngest of my family. So my oldest brother was 20 years older than me. He he died of uh, overdose in 95. So there was a big dynamic difference there between, you know, by the time I became, by the time I was born, when I was born, my oldest brother and sister were already moved out of the house and had kids of their own. You know, I have a couple of nieces and nephews that are actually older than me. (laughs) That's the crazy dynamic of, you know, there was a 20 year difference between, you know, my oldest brother and myself. And I was born in 65, you know, so my family dynamic goes back into the late forties, you know, as far as, you know, my siblings. Do you guys all have the same mother and father between all the siblings? Yeah, we all had the same mother and father. My mother and father are gone now. My mother, died when I was 10. My father died in 96. I mean, it's kind of interesting. You'd think that everything being so dysfunctional that they would have split up or they would have had other partners. And the fact that they stayed together. My father was kind of controlled by my, my mother. My mother kind of my father worshipped the ground my mother walked on and my mother was, you know, in lack of a better term, an absolute psychotic, violent drunk person, <laughs> you know, fueled on alcohol and pills. And that, that was a genetic thing because, you know, that's what happened with my brother. That's what happened with myself. It happened with my sisters, you know, it was passed down, you know, and my mother's lifestyle, the way my mother lived and the way my father lived, that was passed down to us. My, you know, my couple of my sisters were, were, weren't very good parents. They had all their children taken away as of today. There's been over 50 of my cousins, nephews, nieces, whatever, taken out of the homes, put in state custody. And this is spread out over the last 20 years, 30 years. Did your mom ever get diagnosed with anything? And my mother would see something on TV and go to the doctor, and the doctor would give her a diagnosis, and she'd get medication. I had a cabinet full of medication. And at that time, in the 70s, you know, medications were just, especially modern, modern medications, I should say, volumes at that time, preludes, quaaludes, those types of things were just huge. Reds, you know, black beauties, it's the only way I remember them. They were huge and they were everywhere. The lot, um, the lot, you know, second off, you know, barbitol, storazines, they were, I, I, the, my medicine cabinet was, was full of them, as a matter of fact. I stopped taking my Ritalin because I was falling asleep on the way home from school. I'll never forget it. I was probably eight or nine. And so I stopped taking my Ritalin, but I started stealing my mother's volumes. And I would take those in a pony miller to school every morning. And that's what I would have on the way to school in the morning. As crazy as that sounds, that's just, you know, I didn't come into this environment. I was kind of born into it and just raised by it and fell right into it. And 
I would always tell myself, I, I hate my parents. I'm not going to be like my parents. I'm not going to be like my brothers and sisters. I'm not going to be a junkie. And I became my mother and father in every sense of the word. The thing I hated the most, I became. Were you always scared of your mother, would you say? Was there always like a fear? Well, there wasn't so much a fear of my mother. I was very brutal to my mother. I gave back what I got from my mother. And I don't, you know, I could remember, you know, certain things, incidents that would happen. And I was just as brutal to her as I was getting from her. And I wasn't, I never feared my mother. I feared my father because my mother, my father would come home and my mother would already be half in the bag, as you would say. And she would be pissed at me and tell my father what I had done. And I was, I feared my father because my father would beat me because my mother would tell him to. And I would get, I'd kind of get two or three beatings for one incident. I got very smart, very young. If I did something wrong, my mother would pay my brothers or sisters to go and find me and bring me home so she could beat me. And, and so I'd get my ass kicked by them because they had to stop whatever they were doing to find me. And then I'd get my ass kicked by my mother and then by my father. All in one day, and so were you. Were you hoping that somebody would come and save you from this? I had an older sister, my oldest, my older sister, not my eldest. My eldest is in a convalescent home now, but my second oldest sister. She never touched a drug in her life, and for as a child, she's the only mother type figure I could remember being in the house. She brushed my hair every day. She got me ready for school. My mother would scream at her that she was going to quit school and take care of me. My mother and my mother had, didn't take care of me at all. My sister, my older sister did. She was kind of my protector and my disciplinarian. And she, like I said, she made sure that I had clean clothes. She made sure I got on the bus. She made sure I got off the bus. And when she was 18 years old, she got married and ran right out of the house. And I was kind of stuck there. There was nobody else. My two older sisters were already heroin addicts. My brother was, you know, just a mess. I was young and resent her. I never really understood that she was kind of there to to try to help me the best she could. And I still have a very good relationship with her. She's one of my closest friends. What does she do now? How did her life turn out? Oh, it it turned out fantastic. She wound up, she wound up marrying someone who got diabetes and took care of him until he passed. And she married another wonderful man and, but she never had kids. And she said she never had kids because she was afraid she would do what our parents did. That was her exact words, but she helped the person she met raise her kids. She was a school teacher. She retired from the teaching system, you know, and she lives maybe about a mile down the road from me, two miles down the road. And I, you know, I see her once a month, you know, at least twice, once or once a month, I go to her house and twice a month. I see her when we go up to see my, uh, my other sister. What about teachers in your school? Like, was there anyone that was like, okay, Howard needs help. Like we need to, do an intervention. We need to intervene. We need to get him out of this environment. Well, you have to, you kind of have to remember, you know, like it's, it, it was kind of the seventies, you know, 72, 73, 74 at the time. And there wasn't much of that. This is where they were starting to not, you know, you know, of course you'd get a spanking back then, you know, when you went home, if you did something wrong in school, you got to be, and you got a spanking, you know, that was, that was it, you know, and that was a lot in the household. But that's when they were really starting to say, you know, the educators would say, your kid's out of control. You need to put them on something, you know, whatever. You know, I was just, I was, 
I was a bad kid because of I had bad people around me. And so there was really no controlling me. But when I was a kid, we also lived like gypsies. I went to 13 different schools, probably 13 different schools. Sometimes I would go to two different schools within one school year because of the way we lived. And it was, it's crazy that I'll, I'll kind of break it down. This is what would happen. In the summer, and as soon as summer came, my father would get a campground in, in Connecticut and we would camp literally all summer. And my father would go to work from this camp, campground every single day. We'd play whatever in the woods. And when we would come home from camping, we would pack our things in whatever house we were in. And he'd say, that's it, we're out of here. And we'd move into another house or another apartment somewhere. I pretty much lived basically out of garbage bags my whole life. You know, when I went to prison, I went to prison with garbage bags and came out of prison with garbage bags. You know, I no longer live like that, but, you know, so it was, there was never any connection. I never got connected to friends in school. I never got, I never got caught up. And I, you know, the way I think now is I understand why, you know, I had a lot of trouble in school. It wasn't that I couldn't do the work. I, do the work fantastically. I just couldn't show the work. I couldn't do the homework. I couldn't write it down. And so, you know, I failed at a lot of aspects, but there was no catching up for me. You know, every time I went to a different school, it was a different curriculum. So, you know, I understand it now, but as a, you know, as a 10 year old kid, you know, a nine year old kid, you know, all I knew is that's it. I'm going moving somewhere else now, you know? So I pretty much became, you know, I pretty much became a loner. I didn't have a set of friends, I pretty much, you know, I was in the street anyway. After my mother died, I was, my father went to the bar and I was pretty much, he'd come home on Friday and leave 50 bucks for my brother and I and I, we wouldn't see him until Monday or Tuesday and my brother would take 40 of it and go out the door and I wouldn't see him either. And so I would go out and I'd hustle the $10, and, you know, and that's what I would do. And how would you do that? Well, I would go down to the Jamaican store and I'd buy two $5 bags of weed and I would turn them into two $10 bags of weed and I would turn over the money until I had myself things to eat for the weekend until I had more money in my pocket than what was left on the table for me. And that's just the way I learned. I learned at a young age. I learned from my, my, my brothers and sisters how to, how, to, how to manage the streets. I, didn't, I came from addiction in a completely different way than what's normal and I guess the new generation of, of young, you know, what I call, you know, soccer, soccer addicts, soccer family addicts, you know, no other way to put it, you know, when, when heroin hit the suburbs, it hit people that had no understanding of it. You know, they just didn't, I grew up in it. I grew up with, you know, my entire life. And being so young on the streets, like how vulnerable were you to predators and to people that took advantage of that? Well, I would, you know, I would, you know, I was, a, I was a pretty tough kid, but I was still a kid. And, you know, there were a lot of times, you know, people would roll up. And, but what I would do is I'd sell the weed to the 11-year-olds and 12-year-olds. I was 10 years old. And so and it, it had to be tough. I, you know, I, I fought every single day. I grew up, you know, I grew up in um, projects when I was younger. And, you know, I had to be tough because back in the 70s, if you were white and living in the projects, you, know, you had problems. <laughs> you know, you had problems. I fought every single day. I wound up getting thrown out of school. I'd go to school and get into a fight just to go home because I wasn't going to school. Because, you know, I, I was probably, at that point, me and the janitor were the only two white people in the school. 
And were you a small kid or a larger kid? What was no? Your- I was I was short. I was short and small as a kid, but I was I was also sneaky and I was crazy and I just didn't care. I was very violent. I had and I had to be because of the environment not only that I grew up in but the one I was put into. I I remember eating out of a dumpster because there was nothing at my house to eat. I'll never forget it. The dumpster's still there, right in Bridgeport, right on the corner. Burger King is still there. The dumpster's still in the same place. You know, and I had to do that as an adult, as an addict living homeless on the street. You know, I, it's just, as a kid, I had no choice. As an adult, I, I had a choice, but I chose to do that, you know, live that life. I didn't choose it. It was kind of given to me, you know. In that whole journey, do you remember moments that people showed you kindness or people that had had helped life not being as bad as it was? I do. When I was, I remember younger, um, when I would, when I would walk, when, when we lived, when we lived kind of in the city, we lived in near a Portuguese, Portuguese neighborhood. It was at that point, at that time it was, and, uh, the ladies, the Portuguese mothers, they would come out and they'd give me Portuguese bread. I'll never forget a homemade Portuguese bread with butter. You know, you go home, you go home, boy. That's what it is. Cause I was always just in the street. You know, I was never home, never anything like that. And, and so I remember that. I remember that kindness. I remember, um, I remember a lady bringing a dog over and, and my mother said that I could keep it. And she did it because I had, you know, no friends or nothing at this time. My mother was still alive, you know, and I, and the dog was the greatest thing I ever had. And I remember he, it was funny the dog pound came and took the dog because it got in the neighbor's yard and the neighbor called the dog. My father and I got in the car and went down to the dog pound and broke the dog out, put it in the back of the car. And then my father went back in and broke every other dog out and let them all go. And it was, I thought it was the greatest thing in the world. You know, I thought it was the greatest thing in the world. You know, my father, my father was a very good man. He was a very hardworking man. And, my mother's actions is what would cause him to, after my mother died, my father just became a, a drunk. He was no longer angry or he just never knew how to raise me. He, we got stuck together. I was an alcoholic. He was an alcoholic. He had no idea how to raise children ever. My mother did that. And then my brothers and sisters raised all the other kids. And so he, and I never understood that for until later on in my life that it wasn't his fault. He just didn't know how to. But I feel like like what you're saying right now, I feel is very consistent with a lot of kids that have a lot of trauma is they, I don't want to say they make excuses for their parents, but they, they don't throw them under the bus. It, it, you know, like it's interesting that you're kind of saying, I mean, he could have made your life better. It didn't take huge parenting skills. He Tried. I mean, he he tried to keep me in school, and I rem- <clears throat> I remember he would come. He would bring me to school, and I went from what's happened. What happened was is I went from living in a completely crazy environment of inner city kind of living to a completely different environment. I moved from the inner city to basically a backcountry woods type of school because my father had gotten another job with another garage, and I wound up going to a school where. Most of the kids there, the only time they ever saw a gun was when dad pulled it out to go Thanksgiving hunting or something. And I was carrying a gun. You know, I was 12, 12, I was 13 years old. I was carrying a gun. And so my father had 
tough time with me. He was an alcoholic. He would come home, drink, pass out. I wouldn't go to school. He'd wake me up. You going to school? No, he wouldn't care. You know, people would say, he's got to be in school. He's got to be. So I wound up getting thrown out of school at 15. That was it. They threw me out and I was done. You know, I wound up getting arrested, you know, but he, I can't, he could have done better. But I think when my mother was his whole life, she was crazy and she was psychotic, but they had been together for all those years. They had all those kids. And when my mother died, a piece of him just died, the biggest piece of him, I think. And he was just gone. He went right downhill, you know, and just drank heavy until the day he died. Yeah, I mean, I just think when I'm listening to your to your story, I think, that must be so much trauma. Like, Because you don't realize it. I didn't realize it, obviously, because I was a child. You know, I think back now, and absolutely, you know, with without a doubt, you know, it was definitely traumatizing. It was traumatizing probably not only for me, but for my older brothers and sisters. There was a point when I guess my parents were okay, but they were just poor. But... I don't know what had happened because my older sister, and we have a discussion once in a while, and she'll say, she'll say, oh, mom was great. Dad, oh, dad was great. And I said, but your mother wasn't my mother. We had the same mother, but we had the same mother 20 years apart. And there was probably a lot of things happening in that 20 years that led to my mother just not being right for me. You know, but she didn't treat my brother, my older brother, any different than me. She, you know, she was just brutal on the both of us. And on my two older sisters, she just hated us. I mean, there's no other way. She just, I don't know how else to <laughs> to describe it. There was a lot of just hateful things that she just did not like. And when your mother passed away, how did you feel? Do you remember your emotion at that time? My my mother passed away. She my mother went to the hospital on January twenty fourth, and I remember it because it was my brother David's birthday, and we were supposed to have a birthday cake. And I was nine years old, and my mother was at the door with her suitcase, and I said, "Are we going to have cake for David tonight?" And she said, "No." And I said, "Fuck you! I hate you!" To my mother, right in front of my sisters and my brother and everybody else. She went out the door, and that was the last thing I ever said to her. That night, I remember crying, waking up crying and crying. My my sister, the one who took care of me, coming in and saying, don't worry, it's going to be all right. And then uh, that was it. I had the same emotion. You know, I was I was angry. I lost my mother. I was angry. I was angry that she left me. I was hurt. I was crying. I was scared, I, you know. You know, I... I knew I could count on my, my sister being there. You know, my other two sisters were still in the house, but they weren't any help, you know? And so that's, you know, but I felt all of those, those emotions. And for years, for years afterwards, I remember I would get effed up and I would go to the cemetery and just sit there and cry and cry and cry and, you know, but eventually I had to, you know, come to terms that, you know, I was a nine-year-old, scared, messed up kid, and that those words wasn't really what they were, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think that a lot of teens, myself included, said some horrible things to my mom um, yeah. also growing up, and 
that's yeah, kind of also teenager things. Yeah, yeah, it's teenagers. But yeah. not only that, your mom seemed to have deserved that in a lot of ways. It, she she deserved that anger and resentment. I mean, well, that's I, like I said, I I got what I what I was given, and that's probably what she would have said to me in a different light if the circumstances out. I can remember one time, and this is probably, and I say it jokingly now, but I'll never forget it. And my sister still remembers that I was sitting on the couch. I was probably seven years old and my mother was drunk. It was three o'clock in the afternoon. She was watching General Hospital and she looked at me and she said, go get me another bear, you little bastard. And if you shake this one, I'll break every goddamn finger you have. And I got up and I went to the refrigerator and I got the bear and on my way into the living room, I stood in the doorway and I shook it three times and then I threw it into the living room and ran out the back door. That's the way my mother and I got along, you know, and I went out the back door, didn't come home to my father, pulled in the driveway, got my ass kicked for throwing something at my mother. That was it. But I'll never forget it. And that was the relationship that we had had. You didn't, so during this time, you didn't have build any relationships with people outside your family? No, no, not at, not at a young age. No, I had no, no friends, no nothing. I was, I was pretty much just on my own, you know, on, on my own. I spent a lot of time, I spent a lot of time reading. I would read anything and that was just my, my escape. I, you know, I spent a lot of times I'd go to the library and steal five books and go home and read them all. And Do you remember what some of your favorite books were? Well, the Encyclopedia Britannica. When I was a young, young kid, and this is how I got into reading in the first place. When I was a young kid, my brother Wally was in the Army. He was over in Germany. When he came home, he came home with a set of encyclopedias, and they were up in my closet shelf. I'll never forget them. They were white. And I was always in trouble and in my room. My mother, get out of my face, go to your room. You're not going out. So I spent a lot of time in my room. And back then there was no TVs, there was no radios, there was none of that. And so I would reach into the closet and just blindly pull a book down, whichever one it was. And I would just start reading it, encyclopedia and reading it and reading it. And I'd get mad if I pulled one out that I'd already gone through. And and so I would just keep going and going and going and going with it. And then I would just start reading just about, Everything I could get my hands on. It did the newspaper front to back. Every that was probably my biggest escape ever was just reading, and because it took me away from everything. Okay, so then how did you go from loving reading to then ending up in jail? <laughs> well, well, because of my environment, I mean, because. Just because I read well, like I said, I had gone to so many different schools that I, I just couldn't, I couldn't keep up. By the time I got to high school, I was pretty much ready to quit at any given day. My father didn't care if I went, I would have to go because it was the state law. But in school, I had a couple of teachers. Um, I had a history teacher that knew that I knew the work, but I couldn't do the written test. So he would let me just sit and listen all day long, whatever he was teaching. When he took the test at the end of the week, our weekly test, he would take me in the other room and he would verbally, orally ask me the questions because he knew 
I could give him the answers like that, but I couldn't, I couldn't read the question and take the answer from my head and put it on the paper. It just didn't work for me. I had horrible writing. Some of the posts that you see on the page, you'll see that run along sentences. I have a beautiful editor now who's trying to help me, but I just, I never got those skills proper. And so it wasn't that I wasn't comprehending. I was, I had a business teacher. He said, as long as you stay quiet in my class, he said, I'm not going to bother you. You start disrupting everyone else. So I would sit quiet. I wouldn't open up the book. I wouldn't do any of the work. At the end of the week, he'd give me a quiz. I'd get an 80. He'd let me go to study hall the next week. And it was just my way of comprehending things. But certain teachers, math, I failed horribly because I had to show the work. It wasn't that I didn't know the work. I had to show it. And back in the 80s and 70s, you needed to show the work and how you got the work, no matter what you were doing, whether it was science class, history class, whatever it was. And I didn't do the homework and I couldn't show the work, but I could answer the test. I could test. And that was my big escape. So I would get A's and B's. And by the time my grades came, they would be C's and D's because I just couldn't, didn't show any of the work. It was just, so I wound up just, I got arrested at 15 for breaking into a fish market, looking for some food. Um, my father had thrown me out the apartment at the time. And um, part of my probation was to get my GED. So I went to the adult education course and stayed there for one day. I stole the book and brought it home. And a year later, I went down to the high school and took the test. And that was it. I passed it. And got my GED and but I was still an alcoholic I was still drinking a pint pint and a half two pints every single day every single day every single day and then um no I was also in trouble with the law at an early age 14 15 years old for you know breaking into things um selling drugs getting caught with drugs you know public drunkenness weapons just all kinds of things <clears throat> and then at 20, when I found heroin, that's when I really reached the uh, the real highlight of my low life, I guess you would say. I just, that's when I started becoming a violent adult criminal. I, you know, there was no other way to put it. My, my chem chemical craziness led to my criminal insanity for sure. And I, I was robbing started robbing dope dealers. I got addicted to crack and then heroin. Once I got addicted to heroin, I needed heroin every day. I couldn't get enough money between me and the person I was with. I needed three to $500 a day to support my habit and her habit. And so I bought a shotgun and just started robbing dealers. <laughs> Nine o'clock in the morning, right on the corner back then. That seems like, that seems like a really unsafe business to be in. Years ago, I'm an old school I guess, professional, retired heroin addict, whatever you might say, but I cut the middleman out. I remember clearly coming home from, I went down and the cops and drugs and I came back and I had some dope and the girl was like, well, where's the crack? And I said, well, I spent the crack money. I bought the shotgun. And she said, you bought us spent our crack money, the last money we had on the shotgun. And I said, I have a shotgun. We don't need money anymore. That was my philosophy. And I started robbing, uh, robbing dope dealers nine o'clock in the morning, right after they finished serving all their morning customers, I'd rob a dealer, jump right on the highway, go right to the Bronx and I would double my money. 
whatever I was, because I'd be able to get a bundle in the Bronx for $35 and sell it for 100 Do you stay away from the ones that are associated with the big gangs? I mean, because that could lead to you getting killed. I grew up in the neighborhoods. I knew all the neighborhoods. I knew a lot of these guys. I knew these guys, the dudes that were... And back then, Latin Kings were big. They were selling dope a lot on the corner. There were big gangs selling dope. But at 9 o'clock in the morning, nobody was thinking that somebody, some crazy-ass white guy, was going to jump out of a car with a shotgun and rob him. And, and would you wear a mask? Like, I mean, how did you keep it so that they didn't retaliate and just come to where you lived and just, like, blow your head off? At this point... At this point, I, I had moved out of the city at like 13, 14. And when I moved back, when I started robbing these guys, I was in my 20s. I was I was in my 20s. Nobody knew where I lived. I, I would come from the Valley area where I was. And I knew all the streets. I knew all the streets. I knew where all the dealers were. And so I would just pick a spot. I would pick a spot and I'd hold them up. And I would, there were so many spots. I never really had a problem. I would be able to go maybe three weeks, maybe a month hustling the money and then wake up one morning and do the last three bags of dope and put the shotgun in the car and go do it again. But okay. So if you would go and rob these dealers, how how long did you do that for? Was it like six months you did it for? Like how long did that last? I probably, no, I had, I had almost a good year run. I had about, and I, I hate to say it like it's, I'm proud of it because I'm not, you know, I'm not, you know, who knows? I could have robbed a dealer who got robbed three more times in that month and they got to answer to somebody too. Yeah, you know? like, so, yeah, exactly. Because that dealer then has to make up whatever you stole, right? Yeah. And then, you know, the guy he's getting it from, what happens if, you know, this twice you got robbed this month? They're not going to believe it. Crazy ass white guy would have shot. Sure. Because and that's what was so unbelievable about it. And that was the thing that would shock the dealer. First of all, that it was 9 o'clock in the morning in broad daylight. And I wasn't afraid. <laughs> I had I was at a point in my life where if we get into a gunfight and you kill me, my pain is over. I don't have to do this tomorrow. That was my philosophy. That was the only philosophy I had. Have you ever been shot? Have you ever shot someone? Been shot, I've shot? I've shot at and I've shot at. Other people. I got stabbed. I was stabbed and I got stabbed in prison and I, I stabbed a few people as well. You know, that's just what it was. But uh, yeah, I, I shot at, I shot at people and I, I got shot at. I got the car shot up. That was that was what kind of ended the uh, the whole robbery deal. I got set up, you know, uh, eventually it came around and, you know, I got set up and uh, I saw the guy coming. I saw the guy come from around the corner and just start shooting at the car. And the girl I was with, the person I was with. Um, she had, she had a routine. If anything like that ever happened, she was just a step on the gas and go. And that's just what she did. And as crazy as it sounds, she probably saved both our lives. And it was her mother's car and her mother wasn't too happy. Do you ever find, find out what happened to her? What happened to this girlfriend of yours? Oh yeah. Yeah. We had a, we had a child together. Oh wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, we, we had, we had a child together. We are no, I mean, we were together probably maybe three years we got together we had a child she had already had three other boys and then we had a child and then the dope after that incident kind of that kind of we went kind of our separate ways i wound up just going on doing my own thing and uh and wound up i wound up trying to rob a guy for a couple of keys of coke one night and uh got caught i got caught got caught by right outside the guy's house with a gun in my hand and 
didn't go right. It didn't go right. And uh, he had 911 on the phone while I was hitting him with the gun and asking him where all the coke was. I knew it was in the house. You know, and uh, that was it. And my brother was a companion in that case. And that was it. I got charged with seven Class A felonies, facing 120 years in prison. This is Stand Up, Speak Up, and the story of Howard Heathcote. We'll return in just a moment, but first wanted to take 60 seconds to tell you about Stand Up, Speak Up Apparel, a fashion brand created to make a statement and inspire change. And as an extension of that, Carla started the Stand Up, Speak Up podcast. She had been working with troubled teens and other vulnerable people, hearing these stunning stories like Howard is sharing with us today, and wanted a way to share them with more people, get them out there. We really believe that by shining a light on these situations, we can give you an idea of what really goes on in the world and work to change it. So thank you so much for listening to Stand Up, Speak Up. And purchases from the store help us to produce these great podcasts. So we would love if you would take a look at StandUpSpeakUpApparel.com. Just a quick interjection. I'm Zach Tolstoy, one of the founders of Stand Up, Speak Up. Our podcast is just one part of the Stand Up Speak Up brand. We are supported by an online store of the same name where we sell a variety of artisan products. We have an ongoing blog series with over a dozen contributors and we offer a series of interactive workshops. Throughout the different iterations of Stand Up Speak Up, our core message and purpose have always been the same. To create a site that allows our customers and us more opportunities to speak up about and support causes, organizations, and groups that we're passionate about, and that of course could use additional support. My mother and I have learned about allyship over the years from what feels like a thousand and one places and people. We want to encourage members of this fantastic Stand Up Speak Up community to come along and learn with us. So along with our team, we created this workshop featuring videos, articles, and exercises that have really helped the two of us in our own journey towards allyship. Don't worry, it doesn't cost any money, and you don't need to make an account to access the information. We want to make our workshop as accessible as possible because we believe in our message and understand the importance of spreading awareness. The Ally Workshop is split into eight parts, including interactive quizzes and helpful videos. It's intended to introduce you to new skills and courses of action in the world of allyship. The workshop is easy to use and can be done entirely on your cell phone, tablet, or computer at your own pace, with each of the eight sections taking an average of about 15 minutes or so to complete, or a breezy couple hours on a Sunday afternoon. Now we'll get back to Howard's story. Respectfully, Howard has requested that details of the lives of his daughter and her mother not be shared. But we can tell you that he does have custody of a granddaughter who is eight years old. Howard and his daughter do have a good relationship now, and she is raising some other children of hers, while Howard lives nearby with her daughter, who she sees regularly. We'll jump back in with Howard talking about his current wife, which he met because she was his daughter's school teacher. Was there a connection from the first time you met her? There was. It's, it's funny because she had known about me being my daughter's teacher. You know, she had known my daughter would talk, oh, my dad's going to get out soon. My dad's going to get out soon. I was terrified. I, had, I haven't even 
you know, I had been out of prison for two years and I wasn't, I had never, I haven't been touched by another person period in almost 12 years, you know, cause when I got out of prison, my priority were the kids in trying to stay clean and try to go to work every day. And so when I met her, I went down and I was painting in her basement and they were, my daughter and her were upstairs talking. And then she came down and she said, would you like to go to the carnival with me tonight? That's what Kara had said to me and my daughter. And I said, okay. And that's how we kind of hit it off, you know. And what, what did she think of your highly dysfunctional, crazy, could almost be a movie life? She knew of my daughter's crazy life. You know, she, she, knew, she actually knew my daughter better than I did. She had been her teacher for almost three years, sixth, seventh, eighth grade. So she knew, she literally, I mean, literally knew my daughter better than I did, probably knew my daughter better than her own mother did. And she acted like that school mom figure that my daughter needed. She needed someone that she could talk to. And so she kind of knew about the craziness, but she didn't really, she didn't really know. She knew some of my past, but not only what my daughter had shared. And what I had told myself when I got out of prison that honesty is key and respect is key. And so after I met Kara, we had been together for maybe about, probably about three weeks. Her mother came up from Florida and her mother, when she came up, she would stay at her brother's house in an in-law apartment. And one day I went over there and I sat down at the kitchen table with Kara and her mother and her brother and told them all of it. Exactly like I told you just now. What did, like, were they just like, holy shit, how do we get her to not fall in love with him? Or how do we, how do we? <laughs> well, what it was is it was kind of crazy because the last two relationships she I had weren't very good ones. She had had a husband. They were divorced for about 11 years before I met her, but she had two relationships that weren't very good for her. Both of them had issues, you know, addictions, issues, whatever they were. And so when I had met her, she was looking for someone that was nothing to do with that. And that's what I was. I was nowhere near any of that. And I had told her, I said, I'll never forget. We were sitting there one day and she went to her dresser drawer and pulled out a bag and it had about $40,000 worth of jewelry in it. And I freaked out. And I said, how long has that been in there? And she said, oh, it's been in there for about a year or two. And I said, I said, that's like, I said, that's 40,000. Look at all that jewelry. Oh yeah, it was my mother's and it was my grandmother's and my great grandmother's. I said, what's it doing in your dresser drawer? And she said, oh, I'm waiting to open a, um, a safety deposit account. Account. The very next day, we went to the bank. We opened a safety deposit account, and I put that jewelry in there. And she went to hand me a key. I said, I don't want a key. And she goes, what do you mean? You want me to get a safety deposit box? I said, I wanted that out of your house. Because of me just getting out of prison and what my past was, if somebody was to break in that house and take that money, I don't care how honest I was and take her grandmother's jewelry, it doesn't matter how honest I was. What are people going to think? I just spent 10 years in prison, you know, what would you think if you, you know, if you knew nothing? Yeah, I yeah mean, you'd so, have to question, you'd have to think, because, you know, they always say would, all that stuff I, happens. We'd only been together for three know. weeks, so therefore there wouldn't be any question. Her no, brother that's right. beat me up in the front yard, you know, and so I made it the point to do that. And then I also made it the point to have her take her key and go give it to her ex-husband. I said, that jewelry's for your children. He's your ex-husband. You give one key to him and you keep a key and they have a 
very, very good relationship. Her ex-husband's probably one of my closest friends. He really is. I, you know, because they, they got divorced because they just weren't compatible for each other, but they remained very good friends and they remained a single family unit when dealing with their children. They stayed on the same page and they stayed, you know, to this day, they still talk once or twice a week on the phone. And, you know what I mean? It's a, it's a good thing. You know, they're, they're like 1% of every divorced couple. They, they, as far as how they dealt with their children, they did it a united front, no matter whether, you know, they were together or not. It's just, she have a natural caregiver in her, like just extremely kind, like a lot of teachers. Well, the teachers that are obviously good teachers seem to be, have a lot of empathy her classes, her, her, where she taught was, was inner city. She was in, she was in the, the kids that were, you know, on the six year high school plan. You know, a lot of them already had ankle bracelets. A lot of them were gang members. When I first got out of prison, when we first got together, I would go to the schools and I would talk about prison experience, um, gangs, uh, violence, drugs, my entire life. And it was funny because a lot of these kids would see me walk in and say, what's this white guy going to say to us? That's going to make any sense. And then by the time I got done talking, you could hear a pin drop and they realized that they were living in the same crap right at home right now. So they could relate to me on that level. You know, what I came from is what they're experiencing in their homes in the inner city. And so it kind of, it was, it worked out good. It worked out good for me to be able to share that. And it helped, it helped a few of them that I know of. And they, to this day, 12 years later, They'll see me and say, I'll never forget what you said that day. Never forget when you came to the class. You know, so if it helped one of them, then it helps me. So, Well, do you think that going to jail was rehabilitating for you? I mean, do you, do you see it as a positive? Why do you? Absolutely. I mean, in order for me to fix myself, I had to find out what was messing me up. And it was clearly, clearly that fast-paced processing, if I learned how to control it, I learned how to use techniques to slow my brain down because what happens is I had, I had ADHD since I was a child. And instead of me trying to, unknowing as a child, I would just try to kill it away with whatever I could, drugs, alcohol. Doctors were trying to help me control it and kill it away with, with Ritalins and, and things like that. But I had to realize that it's my brain and that's the way my brain processes things. And so if I'm able to just slow it down, I'm able to control it and I'm able to actually run with it and exploit what it has to offer me. And I'm able to multitask. I'm able to do, people do it every single day. They just don't know that that's, that's an ADD, ADHD trait. You know, you have someone that sits at their desk and will do 50 things at one time and still talk to you, drink their soda and order lunch. It's just, and they're happy. They may not have to be happy at their job, but the brain is extremely happy because it's doing that stimuli. It's getting that stimuli. If I was to not let that, if I was just to let it run, I would be stuttering while I'm trying to talk to you right now. I would be stuttering. My brain would not let the thoughts come out properly. They would just overlap them. And as they overlap, the process goes faster. I get, you know, I release of adrenal, adrenaline, it's released, 
anxiety builds, frustration sets in, and then it's just overlapping, overlapping until I will stutter when I try to talk. And that's, and that's how much I know my own brain. And I know, you know, that. And the reason why I, I feel that it, it should be at least looked at, there's different ways to teach. There's different ways to teach ADHD and ADD. And one is just a manifestation of the other. One just manifests into the hard motor skills from what's going on within the brain. And I think that there's ways that we can teach. I think young edu- educators are starting to learn that there's a different way to teach these kids, that it doesn't have to be. I don't have to sit on my hands and be tortured to stare at a board because 30 other kids are being, are being taught that way. It's torture for a child. That's like, that was torture. I, when I was a kid in school, they would make me sit on my hands and watch the board, and I couldn't do it. It was torture. My body had to be moving. If my body was able to move, I was comprehending what they were saying because my brain was able to do five different things and still concentrate on what was being told. You know, my, the problem with that is people jump up and they want to jump around and disrupt five other kids who can't learn like that. You know, who don't learn like that. They need to sit on their hands and they need to focus because that's how they retain the information. With me, I retain more information while I'm doing other things than I do by sitting and listening and staying focused on that one thing. Do you think that the jail system allows people to learn, like from being in the different jails, like what could they do to be better at rehabilitation? Do you ever sit there and go, oh God, I wish I could just be the boss for a day or I wish I could? Sure, sure, because there's, you know, well, prison is incarceration. It's not rehabilitation. If you go to rehabilitation, you're going to a rehab. And I've had this this conversation with people before. We are here to incarcerate. We are not here to rehabilitate. This is you're here because you did so it's up to you to rehabilitate yourself. But the programs that they provide within the system to try and rehabilitate yourself are absolute garbage. And I'll give you an example. If you have an eighteen year old kid gets caught on the street with drugs, whatever, selling dime bags or whatever, okay, here you go, here's a year of probation. Three months later, he gets caught again. Okay, well, now you're going to go to jail for a year for selling drugs. Meanwhile, now he has a baby on the street. He's 19. He's got a baby on the street. He does a year in jail. He gets out. He's got child support he can't pay. He's never had a job. He's only 20 years old. He's going to go back to selling drugs because now he's convicted. Now he's a convict. Sells drugs again. Now he's a three-time loser. Now he's getting five years. Comes out at 23, 24, 25 years old probably has another baby by now. Now he's got two cases of child support, probably at $100,000 that he can't get out from under. He's going to go back to selling drugs. So what happens is he winds up going through this cycle two or three times. He's now 30 years old, has no work history, no social security card, no absolute, no life skill. Where do you think he's going to go when he gets out of jail at 30? He's got no other option. I mean, can he get hired to a service job or do you and that's one of the things that what i would what i would like to see in society as be living within the prison system is simply this and it could go it could and it could very much meld right into kind of what to do with these kids that are getting caught with drugs can't throw them in, you can't can't throw them in jail there's first of all it's rampant you, you, it's not you're not serving any purpose you know 
but what they should do is there should be something where if you're a at any age, it doesn't matter if you're 30 years old and you get arrested and they sentence you to a year in jail. It should be where we're going to sentence you to a year in jail. But after four months in jail, we're going to put you into a program that's going to give you a skill. It's going to teach you how to pay your bills. It's going to, we're going to get you a job. You're going to work. We're going to give you a, get you a driver's license. We're going to, we're going to help you get yourself set up. And that should rang true for someone who got sentenced to a year to someone who had to do 10 years. When I got out of prison after almost 10 years of being in prison, I left with two garbage bags in the middle of January and $500. I had nothing. I had a 10 year Matter of fact, it was almost a 15-year work gap history in my work. What did you do? Like, how did you get a job? Well, what I did, my first goal was to go to my parole officer because that's what I had to do. And then I started filling out applications at Burger King, at McDonald's. I didn't care. I was was 40 years old, and I had nothing. I had nowhere to go. I had a friend who let me parole to their house. So what I did is my brother had been out and he was working for a, a company. They were a paint company, a restoration company that did, you know, construction work. And so he got me a job with him and I had no ride, no driver's license, anything like that. And I told the guy, I will be in downtown New Haven every morning at six o'clock. And he says, I will have someone there the first time you're not there. He goes, that's it. Don't bother coming to work. Every single morning I'd get up at four o'clock, get on the bus go to New Haven, I'd wait an hour. Where do you think you got that drive? I mean, a lot of people would just give up and say, I'm going to go back to what I know best. I, I, had, I had nothing to go back to. I, I'm, you know, I'm, I've got a, I've got a, if I got arrested for a felony right now, I'm, I'm going to go to prison for 25 years mandatory. I won't even see a courtroom for five years. After about a year, and I had to look in the mirror, and when I looked in the mirror, I had, I told myself, point blank words, you piece of shit, up until this point in your life, you've done nothing. You left your kid in a crack house. Look at you. Now, what are you going to do? So I knew that I had to do something. Completely shaved my head. I had real long hair, shaved my head, had all my teeth taken out within the system, took a couple out myself while I was within the system, changed my style, educated myself, went to the library, like I said, went to the library, started ordering books on everything from theoretical physics to the Zoroastrian religion, everything I could get my hands on, and made sure, and I turned that time into pretty much, you know, college time for 10 years straight, no going home, no spring break, no nothing. That's what I did. I fell back into the books that I was so into as a child. And when I got out, when I left prison, I told myself, when I get out of prison, I'm running away from that kitchen table and that life that I knew just as fast as I could. And I got out of prison like I was on fire. That's exactly what I did. Just ran away. I never went back. I never. I knew I didn't. I don't have another run in me. I don't have another prison sentence in me. But that's not what keeps me clean now. That's not what keeps me sober. That's not what keeps me, what keeps me driven every single day now is the people that are around me now that actually care about me for who I am. You know, the, like I said, when I when I sat down with my wife and her mother and her brother, I laid it all out there on the table, exactly what I was, exactly where I came from, who I was, where I was, what I was, what I was all about. 
and they accepted me. My wife did, her children did, her brother did, with open arms and unconditionally. This is Stand Up, Speak Up. As you've heard, Howard Heathcote defied the odds. Despite a difficult life and slipping through the cracks of society, he eventually managed to turn things around. Next time, in part two. Or was she died in her rehab? What do you mean she died in rehab? We learn of more painful blows that Howard has been through. Life in prison, dealing with addiction, and the opiate epidemic. You can find show notes and resources from this episode, including Howard's website and Facebook page, in the show notes at standupspeakupblog.com. And stay here. Our show wrap-up happens right after today's song selection. Hey. What you want from me Whenever you like Yeah, I think it's alright There's something you require That I might provide It's alright for listening to today's song selection that was mary brett lorson now carla joins us again for this show wrap up so this howard story is another one of those just hard-hitting stories that you as you listen to it you just think over and over i can't believe that yet another thing happened to him with so many challenges in his life i know when i first heard his story i was it was late at night and i was reading some of the stories on one of the facebook groups that i'm a member of it's for um, people that have suffered family loss due to, to heroin. And I was reading his story, and it was a few paragraphs long, and I was like, this, this can't even be for real. Like, is this, does all this stuff happen to one person? Like, how is he, I don't know, still kind of positive about life and thinking, you know, he can, he can turn it around to, to be a positive and, and to help others. And so I messaged him that night. 
And then the next day he got back to me and he said, yeah, like what exactly does it mean? Like what's a podcast? How does this work? And so I explained it to him um, over instant messaging for a bit. And then we had our first phone call and I thought I knew the story. So I was, you know, just going to be talking about his, you know, like all the issues he'd been through. And then we started his childhood and I was like, wow, this is a full story. <laughs> I mean, every time I would ask a different question, it would somehow surprise me the answer. Like one of the ones I was most surprised about, but you don't, you don't hear it as much because of course, Joel had to, um, to edit it out. You did, Joel, <laughs> was when I said, well, did you ever know what happened to your ex-girlfriend after you guys robbed all these drug dealers? He's like, oh yeah, I had a kid with her. I'm like, what? <laughs> Joel, I prepared you for this story, right? I said, okay, this is kind of a doozy. So take some time to really listen to it because there's a lot going on there. What, what did you think when you first heard even the first half of the story? Well, I was shocked. And you, yeah, you had prefaced it before I even heard it with telling me how, how crazy the whole story was. And I said, it has to be because one of my jobs is to basically pare down your interviews to something that we can put out there that's you know, that makes sense and is compact enough to fit into a podcast. So when I first got this one, I said, Carla, it's three hours long. What did you guys talk about for three hours? You know, there can't be that much in here that we can actually use. But then as I dove into it, we realized we need to do this in a two-part series because this whole three hours was literally all good. We barely dropped anything from this interview. It's all very captivating because every part of his life's journey is an unbelievable set of circumstances that he has to face. I mean, just when you think it's going to calm down, another whammy comes. And, you know, he's very, very, I don't know if you picked it up when you were listening to him, extremely articulate, extremely bright, appears very educated. I mean, if I had just met him and didn't know anything about his life and you said, okay, what do you think this this guy does, I would think something more academic. I would think, oh, maybe a social worker or a counselor. Um, I don't think I could have ever predicted his background. No. And this, the person he is now, I mean, that was in there all along, you know, even if he had just had some guidance when he was younger to to push him in the right direction, but, you know, definitely it was a result of, of his upbringing or lack thereof, I suppose. Well, and I think what's unique, and I had said to him when we were talking, I said, oh, can you send me a picture of yourself? I'm just curious to know who I'm who I'm talking with. You know, because sometimes it's hard to not have an image of someone that's sharing so much of their life with you and you're trying to, to visualize their life. And when he sent it, I was like, wow, like, he's pretty hardcore looking. Like, I almost expected a more gentle look to him. I think he's very gentle now when you see the pictures of him with his grandkids and he just looks like the sweetest guy ever. But when you see him at his heightened time in jail, and we're going to use that picture for our podcast cover, um, it really shows you, you know, what, what he would, what visually you would have seen if you had met him. And I find it also always so interesting with these types of stories, talking to them you know, at this stage in their life when they're basically, you know, they've they've turned things around is, yeah, hearing the, the casual tone of talking, yeah, I would rob drug dealers and I went to jail. And, you know, this was, he's a different person now, basically, but that is what he used to do. And it's hard to believe just based on 
on the person he is now and talking with them. So do you do any preparation for these interviews before you talk to people? Aside from learning their story, do you prep any questions or do you just get them on the phone and, and talk? I just get them on the phone and see where it goes because, you you know, you have to first build the relationship with them, some type of connection. And if I don't have a connection with someone that I'm interviewing, it usually ends up being kind of a weak interview. And I've had a, I've had some of those in the past that I've even made into podcasts. I haven't been such a deep connection. And I find I have deeper connections with people that are talking about their life story. I think sometimes talking to experts can be a little bit different. Yeah. Right? Because you don't feel the same emotion and the same attachment. Sometimes I feel like they're just getting these questions and they're just giving me the answer. And it's just the same questions and answers because they're an expert in that field. Well, these are my favorite kind of stories for us to put out there because I do think they're the, the, the most effective. You can get any expert on and talk about statistics and how many people are affected by drugs. But no one really understands unless you've lived the life or you know somebody who has or now in this case with with the podcast, we can share these stories that you managed to dig up through these Facebook groups because I always ask you, where do you get these people from? You know, this is uh, – we're finally getting out there I think in the the most effective way possible is hearing these stories that otherwise would, would go unheard and you just don't realize what happens out there. Yeah. I mean you do develop a connection to them, you know, and you want to see them continue to be successful. And I, and I like following up with guests that have been on our podcast. I like knowing how their life has turned out. And I just find their lives so interesting because they've had to overcome so much compared to like 99% of the people. Thanks again for listening to Stand Up Speak Up. We'll see you here next week for part two of Howard Heathcote's story. Have you ever thought, I'd love to have a podcast just like this one? Well, I can help. My name is Matt Kundle, and everyone at my company, the Sound Off Podcast Network, had a hand in making this show. Whether it was about the sound, the discoverability, or that you're just enjoying the show, we are all about the detail. If you think you have a podcast in you, reach out to me via email, matt at soundoff.network. Or check out the website and become one of the great podcasts we work with at soundoff.network.